0: The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. Now as I begin going through the sermon this morning, I would like to do a quick recap of what we learned last week. King Ahaz has has ruled over the southern kingdom of Judah, and he was ruling as a direct descendant of King David. Of course, we know that David was promised that his descendants would stay on the throne forever. If you look at the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, there were 19 kings in each, but in the northern kingdom, there was dynasty after dynasty where they would overthrow one another. In the southern kingdom, every single king that took the throne was a direct descendant of David, including Ahaz. However, he was not like David. He was a wicked king. He did not honor God. And when the northern kingdom of Israel joined with the nation of Syria and turned their sights on Judah to the south, they began picking off parts of the northern region of Israel, as they sent small incursions of military battles into Judah's territory. Now, everyone in Judah was terrified, including King Ahaz. They are described as having their knees knocking together because of their uncontrolled shaking. But God came to Ahaz to comfort him, and he gave him this incredible opportunity that anybody should jump at one that almost no one in history has ever received. God essentially said to Ahaz, I'll show you a sign, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll do that. But Ahaz revealed his lack of faith by feigning humility and declaring, I I really don't want to put you out, God. I'm not going to ask anything from you. Now, instead of asking the Lord for help, Ahaz began attempting to gain a diplomatic alliance with the nation of Assyria, Now, us Syria is different than Syria. They are an empire that at this time was small, but growing. And God warned Ahaz, do not trust them. Do not go to them. Do not make a deal with them. Do not partner with them. They will not protect you. I will protect you. But Ahaz did not listen. He foolishly partnered with the enemy that would eventually turn around and stab him in the back. And ironically... This alliance is the one that would ultimately cause the northern kingdom to be decimated. In our text today, God is not speaking to Ahaz any longer. Instead, in this prophecy, God is speaking directly to Isaiah. But as we come to this divinely inspired word, God is not just speaking to Isaiah. He is now also speaking to us. So allow me to pray, and as I do, I'm going to be asking God to cause our hearts to respond like Isaiah and not like Ahaz. Let's pray. Father, as we gather and circle around your word this morning, I ask, Lord, that you would cause us to be transformed into the image of your Son as we are conformed to your mind, as our thinking is transitioned into something more like your thinking, God, where we are confused or where we are dog-headedly moving in the wrong direction, stop us in our tracks and cause us to think rightly. Lord, I pray that as we consider the realities of salvation in this text, you would give those of us who know you a deep thankfulness and joy in knowing you. And for those who don't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to realize that they dwell currently in a state of deep darkness. Cause them, Lord, today to recognize their state and to run to Jesus, the light of the world. In his name we pray, amen. The text that we are exegeting this morning contains one of the most foreboding prophecies of judgment, but also one of the most soul-invigorating promises in the entire book of Isaiah. It's all based around the concept of spiritual darkness and spiritual light. So in order to best outline the meaning of this passage for you, I've simply broken the sermon up into two parts, and the first part will be all of the rest of chapter 8 that we did not cover last week, and that will be part 1, darkness, and then the first seven verses of chapter 2, I'm sorry, of chapter 9 will be part 2, light. So let's begin with part 1, darkness. Friday night, right after dinner, our family decided to have a game night. And so we pulled out a game, Sheriff of Nottingham, we got all the pieces set up, we got all the cards spread out, and literally, as I handed Athanasius the very last cardboard coin before we could start the game, the lights went out. Game night, sadly, was over prematurely. There was no way we could play this game by the light of a candle or by a flashlight. So after a while, after the kids were in bed and I was getting curious about what in the world was going on. I decided to take a walk around my neighborhood and see if I could locate the damage, if I could find what was the problem. Was there a downed limb? Was there a power uh, line that had fallen in the street? So I began walking around the neighborhood and looking. And I, I was actually surprised to some extent at what I saw. There were at least half a dozen of the neighboring families on our block who had decided to go outside and temporarily take up residency in their cars. Why? Because there was light. Others had already pulled out electric generators or gas-powered generators to turn the lights back on in their own homes. Most of the homes, though, were actually just filled with what looked like lightsaber battles as people were walking around with flashlights. Everybody had light, and by the time I had circled back to our home, I could see through our front window the light of candles flickering throughout the main room of our house. We love light. When was the last time you were in darkness? Real darkness. Isolating darkness. Pitch black darkness. No access to light. When was the last time you experienced something like that? I remember climbing through lava tubes with my family in Oregon once, and we were hundreds of feet Below ground, walking through this ancient tunnel formed by volcanic activity. And as we were walking throughout this ancient solidified magma, there was nothing but darkness. And when the flashlights were turned off, it was terrifyingly isolating. Darkness is the fear that my children first experience in their life. As they are growing up, they're not afraid of anything as a baby crazy things could be going on. And for them, they don't realize there's any difference between being in a car accident and being carried around by their parents. It's the same kind of thing. But they begin to be afraid when they realize that they are sleeping in darkness. We do not like the darkness. But Isaiah's prophecy is not about physical darkness or physical light. It's about spiritual darkness that was going to rest over the people. So follow along now as we see what Isaiah is prophesying, starting in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. This is where Gene left off last week. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with a strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Right here at the outset, God is commanding Isaiah to reject the fearful mindset of the masses. When everyone else is in turmoil, when they are all racked with fear, don't worry about those rumors, Isaiah. Trust me, fear me. As I initially read this, what immediately came to my mind, without any commentary or without any books, what immediately just popped into my brain as I began thinking through this text, was that these people lived in a time with, of course, no internet. They lived in a place with no journalists. News spread very slowly. It spread from person to person. And of course, these people are going to be confused about what's real and what's false. Of course, they're going to be unaware of what's actually happening in other nations across their borders. Of course, they're going to be foolish and backwards and ancient peasants who were afraid and angry and agitated with one another because they were ignorant. But then I thought for just another moment, even as those words passed through my mind, I realized this is a very relevant text for us right now. We live in a divided world. We live in a fear-filled world. Many of us are concerned about racial justice, and rightfully so. We've, we've come a long way in our country, but we have some steps to take. Many of us are concerned about the way police are currently being treated or some of the protests are getting out of hand. And we have reason to be concerned. Many of us are concerned about what's happening with our upcoming elections in November. And we are hoping for one outcome or another as we look towards what will take place at the voting booth. Not to mention the fact that there's the COVID response that nobody seems to agree about. There's the economy There's local businesses, there's schools reopening, there's vaccine laws, and many of your own jobs are up in the air. There's a lot of things that we're not agreeing on, that we're fearful about, that we're confused about, that we are arguing about, and that the people of God need to look at and say, Be not afraid, look to the Lord. In reality, We would probably be better off if we were like the people of Judah in this time. We would be better off if we had no news or journalists or social media telling us constantly, pushing in our faces, shoveling into our mouths all the news that is being given. What's worse is everyone who's speaking to you, everyone who's telling you what to believe, has their own agenda. Every last one of them is pushing for an outcome. And sadly, Almost nobody's motives are to point you to Christ. So you're probably tempted to get worried or bitter or angry. I know that many, of t- many times I feel that way. But the Lord is demanding, just as he is demanding to Isaiah, don't think the way they think. Don't look at the world the way they do. Set your eyes on him. Fear him. And he will cause you to navigate the minefield of these tumultuous times. But God also makes a distinction between the response that will be received by those who trust him and by those who do not. Verse 14 says, and he, God, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now to those who trust in the Lord, there's a brief snippet of promise here that is so precious to us. He says, I will be your sanctuary. This, this word sanctuary, I think, has gotten completely, it, it's just lost its meaning in the way that we use it so often. Many people speak about a room like this as a sanctuary. But this is not our sanctuary. Jesus himself is our sanctuary. This is a room where we gather Jesus is the promised one who will protect us. The word sanctuary was a place where you could go if you were being pursued by a foreign government. You could go into the sanctuary and say, I proclaim sanctuary. I have freedom as long as I stay here. You cannot arrest me or harm me or attack me or kill me. As long as I stay in this building, I have sanctuary. And the Bible says, he himself will be the sanctuary of those who trust in him. He has a guarantee of a place of refuge. He is presenting himself as the ultimate and exclusive place of safety. Isaiah, I am your sanctuary. But then we see the negative side of this prophecy as well. In the Bible, Jesus is described as three different kinds of stone. Of course, we know that he is called the chief cornerstone. That he is the one by which the rest of the church is set. He is also called the head of the corner, or the, the, sometimes it's called the capstone. Sometimes it's also translated as cornerstone, but it's a different thing. It's at the head of an arch. It is the one that makes all of the rest of the pieces stay in line. It is also the one that receives the most prominence and glory. We see that occasionally in the New Testament. However, he is also called a stumbling block. And a stumbling block is something that that I think is probably the most peculiar to our minds when we think of Jesus. What do you mean that this Messiah to come is going to be a stumbling block? I think this is probably the well, least well-known of the three. This stone, it's also called here a stone of offense. Uh, this stone is one that is intentionally designed to trip people up. When it says stone of offense, it means the same thing as a stumbling block. They are the same thing. However, The language gives it a really rich flavor. A stumbling stone was placed into the ground at the city entrance at the gate so that they were like the original uh, speed bumps. You know when you're driving and all of a sudden you don't know there's a speed bump there? What does it do to your car? (coughs) Just tears everything up. It's designed to make you slow down. It's designed to remind you it is not safe for you to drive quickly here. You must take notice of this location. Well, in the ancient world, they would often take at the city gate a large stone and they would lay it down in front of the entrance so that if you were to come in, you had to slowly navigate your cart or your horse or your chariot through. In other words, they did not want a foreign invasion to be able to rapidly fill into their city. It was a way to force safety, but it was a way to force people to stop and to slow down. It was a way of ensuring that there would be those who have to pay attention. And the term stone of offense refers to the same thing, but it uses a Hebrew word that means a stone that strikes you. In other words, it's saying you are literally going to be hit in the face by this reality of the Messiah. You will know when he is here. It's impossible for you to avoid noticing this stone. The New Testament regularly refers back to this passage. For example, Jesus accused the Pharisees of fulfilling this passage. And later on, Paul took up this message in Romans 9 and said, as he's making this extended argument about why God's promise has not failed to the Jews, he said, it has not failed because, chapter 9, verse 32, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, they get uh, the news about Jesus. We see this all the time. People receive the news about Jesus. They just can't swallow it. How true is this as we share the gospel? You can't ignore the claims of Christ. He says that he is the only way to the Father. He is the only path toward heaven. Yet people hear this news and they reject it. They, They stumble over it. They cannot accept it. So many look at the Messiah and they trip over him on their way to destruction. Now look back at Isaiah chapter 8 verse 16 as we speed up just a little bit. Now we're going to see the way unbelievers seek to give themselves peace. He says to Isaiah, Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord says Isaiah, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And in him will I hope. There we see the Christian response. I will wait for him. I will trust in him. I will believe in him. Verse 18, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Now there's another group of people, There are those who will not listen, he says, and when they, those unbelieving Jews in this time and place, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. The world has no answers. These people in Israel, in Judah rather, they have no idea what is coming against them or how to battle back. So what do they do? They reach out to those who seek through mystical ways to speak to the dead. And as they attempt to communicate to the dead, they begin whispering and chirping as if these dead people are giving them sound advice, and and they begin proclaiming, this is the right way. And he says, should you not be just asking God? Isaiah says, don't you think you should just look to the scriptures? He said, to the teaching and the testimony? That's the Old Testament he's referring to. Why don't you just look back? If you want to know what God says is coming, read it. It's there for you. You can know and understand. But instead, they do just what King Saul had done. They seek the living, to learn about the living among the dead. But it doesn't produce any answers for them. As you see, they're trying to provide for themselves, but it results in nothing but deeper hunger. They have no satisfaction. They have no answers that produce for them profit. So what happens? They turn their faces upward. But it's not to look at the Lord and say, Thank you, Lord. It is not to ask him for things in prayer. It is not to seek for his wisdom. Rather, it is to shake their fist at the sky and hate the Lord and speak contemptuously towards him and then turn their hatred on the king and say, and this king that you gave us also. Brothers and sisters, are you not thankful that we have been given a way to speak to God in prayer and that we are able to hear from him through the word? one of the ways that you can kind of determine which of these two camps that you lean in is this. It's not just whether or not you go to fortune tellers and card readers and other things like that. Of course, if you're doing those things, you're not trusting in the Lord. But one of the ways you can tell if you lean in the right camp here is the way that you have a relationship with the word of God. Do you, like these rebels and wicked individuals, ignore the word that God has given to us? Do you ignore him in your prayer life? Do you avoid him and search for answers everywhere else? You are getting your answers from somewhere. Where? I want you to understand what he is saying here. He's teaching us that we are to examine the word. Do you love it? Do you memorize it? Do you meditate upon it? Do you have people in your life that you discuss it with? What you love, you will talk about. If you delight in something, you can't wait to share it with others. Do you love the Word of God? Uh, We're going to begin doing something, Lord willing, very soon where I'm going to encourage those in the church to begin doing a one-on-one Bible reading with at least one other person in their life whether it's a spouse or someone in the church, where you will look through a book of the Bible and you will say, we will go through the book of Philippians in eight weeks and we are going to meet once a week for 30 minutes, whether it's in person or through Zoom. And we will begin to discuss this one-on-one and see what the Lord is teaching us through the word. And do you know why I think this is so valuable? Is because I think probably for the most part, Those 30 minutes of thoughtful conversation that you have about the Bible will automatically increase the amount that most of us are already putting our nose in the book. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, do not ignore the word of God. That is the first thing he comes after in these people. You are getting your answers for life, but you're probably not receiving them from the right sources if you are avoiding the word of God. He has provided truth for us right here. Let's go and let's find it. Now we see the results of those who search for wisdom in the wrong places in verse 22. It says, they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. When I spoke earlier about the most foreboding of the prophecies, consider what this is declaring. What was there before God initiated creation? There was darkness. And God, as he created, the first thing he declares is, let there be light. And now he is saying in a spiritual sense, I am going to take you back to that pre-creative state. I am going to take you back to a place where you are spiritually nothing. We must be a new creation created by the Lord. They are going to be thrust into a thick darkness. The, the word for this in Hebrew is literally, I am going to put you in a place where there is no light at all. Now imagine, just imagine living in that way. No light at any point. Now, one of the greatest philosophical works that has ever been written is called The Cave by Plato. It's a metaphor for epistemology. Epistemology is the the study of how we know things. In it, there are people who are in a cave and they are groping around as they make their way through life. They, they, they cut themselves and bruise themselves and trip over things as they constantly bash into the walls of this cave. They are struggling to survive because they cannot see anything around them. They are in complete darkness, but they don't know that they're in darkness. They're unaware that they are surrounded by darkness because they don't know the light. They don't know anything different, but eventually one day, one of the individuals looks up and he sees a light at the opening and that ray of light changes everything for him. All he wants to do is bring others to it and let them see it. Now I'll, I'll let you read, uh, search out Plato on your own. There's a lot of things he gets right about epistemology. There are also some things he gets wrong. I'll let you search that out on your own. But in this text, what I want you to see is that God is promising a thick darkness over the soul is going to be cast over these people in Judah. He is declaring that these individuals will be not only in darkness, but unable to find the light. They're not capable of seeing truth. They're not capable of discovering reality. They're not capable of knowing life as God has truly intended it. They're not able to understand or see God correctly. They don't have the right lens to see these things. They do not have light. And they will continue to be in darkness unless something outside of them provides light to them. Now, in this spiritual state is how we are all born. You and I came into the world physically able to see, but spiritually blind, spiritually in darkness, spiritually incapable of recognizing or understanding what is actually real. We had never seen the light. We are completely ignorant the spiritual realities even exist. Now, every culture throughout history has acknowledged there must be something beyond what we can see. They have enough of an awareness as they trip over the realities of the universe that there must be a spiritual dimension, but they can only speculate as to what that is. They have no ability to see it. Yet, there has to be a dawning in the soul for you to know it, which is where we come now to part two of our sermon, light. Whereas chapter eight ends on this downward note of gloom and anguish and utter darkness, chapter nine is completely different. It's almost as if you were listening to, to music. Now, I, I, I listen to music a lot while I am preparing sermons. Yesterday, I asked uh, Alexa downstairs to play for me famous movie scores while I am sitting there and reading and typing. And I said, Can you can you just play for me, Alexa? Famous movie scores. And I I don't know why Alexa gets so many things right. This it just can't seem to get right. So finally, I Googled, what is a good playlist of, of music scores? And so it was epic movie soundtrack. So I said, Alexa, play that. And as it is playing this, the first one that began to play was The theme song of the Dark Knight, the Batman movie, which is dark and foreboding. And the very next song is the Superman theme song. And the transition between the two was radical. That is like the transition between chapter 8 and chapter 9. It punches you in the face if you are reading as you come to the end of chapter 8 and begin reading through chapter 9 where it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish it's going to come to an end. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Notice that the dawning of light does not have anything to do with their change of attitude. It does not have anything to do with their change of character. It does not have anything to do with them marching their way to the correct direction. It does not have anything to do with them in their own strength or intelligence lifting their eyes and seeing light that was already present. This is light that has come to them. It searches for them, it seeks them out. Now, I want to briefly note that. You can see multiple occasions of this in this chapter, but you will see it all throughout the book of Isaiah, something that grammatically is called the prophetic perfect tense. Now, it sounds more confusing and difficult to understand than it really is. So just carefully understand, when when a prophetic author is going to write about something, occasionally they will write about it in such a way that they will declare that it has already happened. And they will do that to declare that this is locked in stone. Nothing will stop this from coming to pass. It is as good as done. So he says, these people have seen a great light. Well, Isaiah is prophetically looking forward to the one who is coming, the light that will dawn, Jesus himself. He says, the word of the Lord, these people have walked in darkness, but now they have seen this great light. He was declaring the arrival of the son of God. And he was doing so by faith. In verse three, he says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, in the days of this declaration, it is likely that every single one of the people of Judah, every one of the Israelites who heard this prophecy and believed it, They probably all thought that it meant Israel's borders or Judah's borders would be expanded. When he says that you have multiplied the nation, they are assuming this means that their militaristic campaigns would eventually be able to press them further throughout that region of the Middle East. Isaiah himself probably assumed that God was just promising to multiply their borders as he was speaking about national Israel. But God's plan is much bigger than that. When God sees the globe, he doesn't see all of these man-made lines that we have put in place. All of those artificial boundaries, those are not stopping his magnificent purpose of creating a global kingdom. He will build his church, and people from every nation and tongue and tribe will be part of that kingdom. That growth will cause the people's joy. Notice that this entire section is about the joy of the people. This entire section is about what wellspring comes from the heart of these individuals who know what he is doing. You will notice that the next three verses all start with the same word. It is the word for Each one of these statements relate back to this idea of joy. Why will they have joy? They will have joy because of these three things. These are the causes of joy for every believer. Isaiah is declaring that these are reasons for the remnant to rejoice. So let's examine each one of them in turn. Here is the first of the three causal statements. You shall have joy, why? Because, or for, the yoke of this burden and staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is not fulfilled by God's removal of political oppression. Political oppression has occurred against the church and against the people of God consistently from this day until now. In fact, I just received this week in the mail A Voice of the Martyrs magazine, declaring more and more ways that people right now, this morning, as they are on their way to church, are being lined up against a wall, they are being recorded, their names are being put into a database, they are being arrested, and some are being killed because they proclaim the name of Jesus. This does not mean that physical oppression from political enemies against the church will come to an end. We pray that it will, and someday, in the ultimate kingdom of the Lord, those times of oppression will cease. But here, what he is promising is a Uh, an end to spiritual oppression. Remember the motif of this entire passage is still about darkness. It is speaking about the oppression of being in that place where we are ruled by our own mind and by our own sin and by Satan's kingdom. And he says, that is now removed our souls are free to follow Christ. We see what is real and we pursue the king of the universe with our lives. He whom the sun sets free is free indeed. There is no oppressor that could cause our souls anguish. This, the second cause here, why should we have joy? Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, here, it's important to understand linguistically what is taking place. He is not referring to foreign armies. If you look at the language and peel back the Hebrew, this is speaking about his own armies. He's saying we won't need them anymore. Now, when I was a kid, there were a lot of songs that are, are, I think every church in America taught their children. If you grew up in the church here in New York, I would love to hear your backstory on this. There were a lot of songs that we sang as children in children's church that had a very militaristic tone to them. And and maybe you know what I'm, I'm speaking about. Songs like, Onward, Christian soldiers, marching on to war. Anybody hear that? Yeah, okay, a few more than I expected, right? What about this one? Have you ever heard this one? I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army, right? There's a militaristic, I mean, there's literally like almost a march that goes to these songs. I think we actually did march in class as we sang these things. There is a militaristic background to a lot of these songs. And, and I agree with what they're saying in sentiment. But please understand, verse 5 is showing us that the kingdom of God is different than every earthly kingdom. It does not advance itself by oppressing others. He is not going to grow his nation by force. Brothers and sisters, there is no Christian military. We have no army or navy. The church does not. Nations do. There is nothing wrong with Christians joining the army or joining the navy of a kingdom or of a nation. But the kingdom of God is not advanced by warfare or statecraft. So what is he saying? Burn your boots. Roll out that blood-stained uniform and throw it in the fire. You don't need it anymore. Christian, we share the gospel as a gospel of peace. We interact with those who disagree with us lovingly. Share the gospel with a smile. Be winsome as you plead for people to repent. The world out there is just as divided as ever, and they don't know how to talk about it. They just fight and argue and are bitter towards one another constantly, but show them that we in the church have true unity, that we are bonded together around our common citizenship in heaven as we worship our common king. Which brings us now to our third and most famous of the causal statements. Why are we to have joy, Christians? Because of who it was that was coming. You see, this light is not just a pure abstract. It is not just a concept. It is not just an idea. It is not just an awareness about truth. It is not just a philosophy or a new religion. The light that was promised to come is a person. For unto us a child is born. For to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Merry Christmas. That's why I've titled this sermon Christmas in July. The light that dawned is Jesus himself. To those who were in darkness, who continued to pursue their own way, he says to them, they have no dawn. But he says there is a light coming. This individual. Now, notice the wording here. Dante and Claudia just had a baby. We love her, but we don't say that she was born to us. She was born to Dante and Claudia. That's their baby. But the Lord promises there's a child that is born to us. He has been given to us. He is for us. His birth is for the purpose of saving and redeeming us. Consider the weight of the rulers of Israel were on his shoulders. The people who were in charge constantly rebuked him and pushed back against him and eventually crucified him. But he was uniquely qualified to carry the burden that they put upon his shoulders. Why? Because of his identity. Listen carefully to the prophecy of Isaiah as we consider this fourfold title that is given to this promised Messiah. He is first called Wonderful Counselor. Counselor here just means teacher, one who declares what is right. Now, Jesus, when he spoke, his words were different than anyone else in all of history. Even uneducated, unregenerated people could hear his words and recognize that every word from his lips were unique. As a 12-year-old, his parents find him in the temple teaching lifelong scholars of the word with his words. We see in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 29, the crowds declared when Jesus finished saying these things, they were astonished, and, and they were astonished. Why? At his teaching, because what were they saying? He was one who teaches with authority, not like the scribes. Sure, they've got a lot of details, they've got a lot of information, they've got a lot of facts, but this guy has authority in his words. He was not just eloquent, although I believe he was that, these words rang true with the power and authority of God himself. Just as when God said, let the light come into the world, or let the ground produce vegetation, the world could not stop from obeying what he said to do. As soon as he said, let the ground spring forth with vegetation, I imagine the entire planet just burst as the ground could not say no to him. Now he stands there before them teaching them and they say, those are words of authority. He is a wonderful counselor. At the sound of his voice, the wind ceased its clamoring and the waves died down. At the sound of his voice, fruitless trees shriveled and died. At his command, people were healed with a sentence, with a single breath on occasion, even from a great distance. As he said, go home, your servant is healed. It was with authority that he spoke language that cast out a legion of demons from a a man. When he speaks, his counsel is not like the things we cook up in our minds that are tainted by fallen reason. He is a wonderful counselor. In John chapter 7, verse 46, the crowds rightly announced, no one, no one ever spoke like this man. And in John six sixty-eight, when Jesus asked the 12 if they were going to leave him, Peter replied, where else can we go, Lord? For it is you who has the words of eternal life. We have a wonderful counselor. Just in case there was any ambiguity about the divine nature of this promised Messiah, God then clarifies through Isaiah that this light that was coming into the world would not just be a normal man. He was also going to be God himself. So he says that his name is to be called Mighty God. This word mighty is interesting in Hebrew. It's, it's, it's presented to us multiple occasions and every time it's a reference to God. So even the word mighty here is is exclusively given to God himself. And the word literally means conquering hero or champion. Make no mistake, God would not use this title for a man. This is one of the clearest prophetic declarations that the son of God would step down from his throne and show himself mightily here on earth. And he certainly is a mighty God. When death came for him, it exhausted every last ounce of its power, and it still fell short. Acts chapter 2 verse 24 says, "'God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it.'" It was not possible for death to hold down our mighty God. He is powerful enough to overthrow the curse of sin. He is powerful enough to overcome our sinful hearts. I remember reading John Calvin's commentaries about 10 years ago and coming across a little statement that he probably wrote just very rapidly, not, not putting a lot of effort into. And for me, it stopped me in my tracks for about a week. He said, in the first creation, God created everything out of nothing. But the second creation was a much more challenging one in that in the first creation, there was nothing saying no to God. But when he creates a new heart in us, We are running and rebelling, yet he has no difficulty declaring, you are mine. And he creates in us a new creation. Now continue on. He's powerful enough to resist temptation. Jesus, he was tempted in every way as we are. You're tempted by something small and you're like, I can't bear it. He was tempted consistently. And that temptation built over his entire life and still he stood firm. What a mighty God he is. But Jesus is also called the everlasting Father. Now, this one is certainly the one that has been the most confusing for folks. How is Jesus, the Son of God, referred to here as the Father? This would be perhaps better translated as the Father of eternity, or the one who will rule as king forever. In that case, it is referring to the eternality of Jesus, that he has always existed in perfect union with God the Father. So when it calls him Everlasting Father, it is saying that he is the one who was there at the beginning, the Father of eternity. Everything that exists has flown from him and out of him. And fourthly, he is called the Prince of Peace. Jesus did not arrive on a war stallion. He did not come in a tank to wipe out the Romans. He did not operate as a warmongering despot, but as a gentle unifier of his people. Not a brutal tyrant who makes peace by force, but a meek shepherd who reconciles us to God by his own suffering. Now, if you're an unbeliever in this room, your life up to this point has been a lifelong crusade of hostility toward your creator. You have rejected him. You have failed to love him. You have refused to obey him. And you deserve nothing from him except a militaristic response of eternal wrath. But the gospel teaches us that Jesus is the prince of peace. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 teaches us that Jesus came to, quote, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. He made peace with us by dying. He made peace with his people by paying our sin. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He is our prince of peace. And this peace is available to all who would hear the gospel and believe it. If you have been given ears to hear, hear! respond with faith, respond with repentance to this good news that Jesus died to bring terms of peace to the war that you have declared on God. The kingdom of God is made up of people who have seen Jesus, the light of the world, and have been called up out of that cave of faithlessness. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How is it that we are removed from this darkness? It is because God saved us. It is not because you are clever enough to climb up out of the cave of ignorance. It is not because you are wise enough to discover the right path to heaven. It is because God lovingly looked down on you, his enemy with grace and said, that one in darkness is mine. And he reached down into that cave and he plucked you out of the darkness and said, let there be light and has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness. This kingdom that we have been brought into is not a temporary settlement. It is not in danger of any outside forces. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. The church will continue to fill the world. As much as the world might try to stop it, it will advance. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Church, we are in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he says, one of the most important lines in the entire passage, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word for zeal in Hebrew is a, is a great word. I love that Hebrew has very few words in its vocabulary. So the way that they d- develop an idea is by taking cu- a couple of words and mashing them together to make a thought, to make a concept. And here, the word for zeal is literally to be read in the face, not with anger, necessarily. It means to be passionate about something. It means that you are working hard towards something. I love how Kent Hughes states in his commentary about this. He says, the idea of gentle Jesus meek and mild is not wrong but it is incomplete. He is also zealous, Jesus, brave and bold. His passion is driving history toward the final triumph of grace in the messianic kingdom. In quote, do you realize what it means that Jesus was zealous for this outcome? It means that he was passionate for your salvation He was passionate long before his arrival in Bethlehem to pursue his people and redeem them. Brothers and sisters, this is certainly a cause for joy. For our benediction this morning, we're going to be singing a Christmas song. It's a song that we've sung here before, but as we proclaim these lyrics, I want to encourage you, let your heart be overwhelmed by the joy of this Savior the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, Jesus, the light of the world that has dawned for us to call us out of darkness and into his own kingdom. Let me pray. And as I pray, I'll ask the worship team to come forward and then we'll rise and sing. Father God, I, I thank you that you sent Jesus to be the light that we desperately need to see. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that has not yet seen the light that today that you would break through those clouds of darkness and make yourself known to them. Reveal yourself, give the gifts of faith and repentance. And Lord, for all of us who know you, who have been graciously redeemed. Lord, I pray that we would never be so distracted by the thundering of this world that we will look at the darkness and ignore the light. Help us, Lord, to make our lives dedicated to moving forward towards you and becoming more like you. Let us live in such a way that we are like Jesus, our light. In his name we pray. Amen.